Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. Before the long Tishrei uh, hiatus, we announced our new mission statement at Jew in the City. Um, when I founded the movement, which then became an organization 11 years ago, our mission was to break down stereotypes about religious Jews and offer a humorous, meaningful look into Orthodox Judaism. Um, since that time, we have expanded into sort of the ex-religious community, the ex-Haredi, or sort of questioning Haredi community. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of uh, challenges out of that community, and we've updated our mission statement now to say, Jew in the City reverses negative associations about religious Jews um, by highlighting an approach based on kindness, sincerity, uh, critical thinking, and tolerance, um, and makes engaging and meaningful Orthodox Judaism known and accessible. Um, and I think to make Orthodox Judaism um, engaging and meaningful, we need to, A, have sort of interesting topics that um, kind of pique our curiosity, um, which I think for a lot of people is sort of how the world works, um, and to have meaningful answers to deal with perhaps some of the challenges of, you know, the world and science versus the Torah. Um, and someone who is the foremost expert in kind of this area is a man named uh, Rabbi Natan Slifkin. Um, he is the uh, founder and director of the Biblical Museum of Natural History in Beit Shemesh. Um, and he's written numerous books on the topic of Judaism and the natural sciences. Um, and he is also well known as the Zoo Rabbi. In 1999, he began teaching about the relationships between Judaism and the animal kingdom um, at the Jerusalem Biblical Zoo. And he developed the Zoo Torah program, which he takes all over the world, including safaris in Africa, which is maybe one of my goals in life to do one day. Rabbi Slifkin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So you, you know, I we're, we're Facebook friends, so I see your updates, and you often have interesting things that you write on your uh, blog, Rationalist, uh, Rationalist Torah. Yes, I got that right, Rationalist Torah. Rationalist Judaism. Rationalist Judaism. There we go. Rationalist Judaism. Um, and I've okay. seen um, on your Facebook page that you had uh, an event that you did recently in Jerusalem, um, and you have something upcoming now in Teaneck. Uh, and Ju as a bulge... I'm sorry. sorry no, it wasn't in Jerusalem. It was in, uh, in the museum in Bet Shemesh. Oh, got it. Okay, sorry. I'm, I'm American, so I just sort of like lump everything together. All right, in the, in the museum in Beit Shemesh. Sorry about that. Okay, so you did this um, this dinner, and you've done these before, these different feasts of um, sort of unusual uh, animals. As a Balchuva, that gave up a lot of different foods when becoming religious, and who was always looking to recreate um, kosher versions of my favorite treif, childhood foods. Um, this definitely piqued my interest. So... Um, I saw that your program was called Flashics from the Sea, Kosher Squid, the Saga of Swordfish. So let's talk about this. Like what, you know, does this feast include? What are sort of some of the, you know, areas of uh, machlokas or, you know, kind of how did you begin doing this? And, you know, what sort of um, out-of-the-box dishes did you serve at this one? Did you serve at past ones? So the... Biblical Museum of Natural History deals with the relationship between Judaism and the animal kingdom. So when we decided to put on uh, special fundraising events, we decided to do them you know, along these lines, uh, dealing with unusual aspects of the relationship uh, between Torah and animals. So we came up with different types of events. The first one that we did 
uh, three years ago at the museum, which we're repeating uh, in Teaneck in, in uh, week after next, is the uh, biblical feast of birds and beasts. Now, serving the uh, unusual animals and birds that in Tanakh we see people which are not being eaten today. And the following year, we did a feast of... Oh, can, and the following year, we did a feast of non-biblical like, foods. Like, so, and what, what type, what Sorry, type right? of birds are we... So, um, in Tanakh, you know, there were no chickens. Right? People didn't eat chickens back then. In fact, it's interesting, you know, today you think of, like, the quintessential Jewish bird as being, you know, the chicken, you know, along with the, uh, the gefilte fish being the uh, typical Jewish fish. But uh, in Tanakh, there's no reference to chickens at all because there were no chickens. Mm -hmm. Chickens were domesticated from Indian jungle fowl, which gradually spread around the world, but they hadn't yet reached uh, the land of Israel in biblical times. So no reference mm -hmm. to chickens in Tanakh. Instead, mm -hmm. people were eating doves, geese, and, of course, quail. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the things on the menu, along with uh, goat, which is not commonly eaten today, but was very much you know, a staple food item back then. Wait, can you say that again? Uh, and then like the ultimate goat. look. You can say goat. Wait, what was the word? Goat? Goat, goat. G-O-A-T. Oh, goat, goat. Okay, well, yeah, we, we eat goat. Well, we eat lamb, yeah. right? Lamb, not goat, right? Right, right. But, but uh, back then it was goat that was much more commonly eaten. Okay. And uh, and the ultimate um, the ultimate food people ate was uh, was venison was deer. It says mm -hmm. that uh, Shlomo Hamelach, King Solomon, and his table every day they served deer. Now there isn't really any kosher venison available today, so we do no special shechita for that. So that was the biblical menu. Uh, and then the following year we did a non-biblical menu, which is things like pheasants and guinea fowl and Asian water buffalo. Uh, and then this year, we wanted to do something different Asian again. What, what, that's a, that's a mammal, that meaning, what is it, what is an Asian yeah. water mm -hmm. buffalo? It, oh, it's, oh, it's kind of like a cow, it's like falls under the cow family. Okay. Well, yeah, except, yeah, much, uh, a very big, powerful animal with enormous horns. Um, right. and then this year we wanted to do something different again, so we came up with the idea of a feast of legends from the sea, that everything would tie into the theme of being from the sea. And that was our most uh, original um, menu. So I saw things uh, that you were posting on Facebook that something was like kosher in something that's not kosher. So, I mean, it was really intrigued me. So could you go through the menu of, you know, what you served well, and, you know, some of the, I guess, sort of interesting aspects right. or elements of what was in the sea? Right. So, so one of the aspects is, you know, tying into what you said before, that... Um, a lot of people are wondering, you know, what does non-kosher food taste like? What's it like? Are we missing out on things? Uh, or does it taste disgusting? So the, uh, the Gemara says two very interesting things. Firstly, the Gemara says that a person should not say that non-kosher creatures are repulsive. You should just say that I'm sure they t taste good, but we're forbidden to eat them. Uh, but we should say that we're not eating them because, because, because God forgives them, but not that they're repulsive in any way. And the second that. thing the Gemara says is that... Is that for everything, for anything that's not kosher, there is a kosher equivalent. Yeah. So, for example, the Gemara says that, you know, meat and milk is not kosher, but the Gemara mm -hmm. says that there's a kosher food that has the taste of meat and milk, and that is others. So that's one of the things we served last year. Wait, so, so tell me, what is this? Others? What is it? Others. Cows, others. Oh, cow's udder. Sorry, I don't have an American accent. No problem. <laughs> You'll have wait, to uh, do that from my uh, British accent. 
Wait, so cow's udders taste like milk and meat? Yep. That's what the Camaro says. And does, but does it? Like, does it taste like a cheeseburger? Like, how does, like, is that well, more... Well, I have to say, I, I, I eat sort of uh, unusual things, but the cow's udders, of all the things we've served over the years, the cow's udders was the only thing I had a really hard time eating, so I didn't get much of it down. I can't tell you what it tasted like. Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah, that doesn't, I mean, you know, I grew up with uh, veal parmesan and, and cheeseburgers, and... Um, Got it. Okay, so udders supposed to taste like milk and meat, and is there like a pork replacement? I'm saying, does the Camaro go through like different things that yeah. are supposed to? So, so yeah. So the pork replacement is the Camaro mentions a certain fish, which is not obtainable uh, today, but uh, there's a certain type of seaweed which prepared in a certain way tastes like bacon. So that's uh, one thing we served last year. Wait. Oh, so what? Um, wait. So and then this year, we did serve it last year. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, yeah. Last year was the. Uh, was the topic of halachic oddities. So we found this certain type of seaweed that could be prepared in a way to taste like bacon. But you can't get it anymore? No, no, that I can. But it's just this year we were dealing with theme. This year the theme was, you know, seafood. So we wanted to, uh, so for part of the meal was the idea of replicating non-kosher seafood items. Got it. Wait, can we just do what, one so more thing was, in terms of uh, this? See, um, the seaweed yeah. that tastes like pork. So can any of us get this? Like, can we go to a store and get this? Or um, this it's is called, it is available. It's called uh, red dulse, but it has to be prepared in a certain way in order to taste like bacon. Got it. Red dulse. Wait, does anyone, like, publish recipes, like, about how to make bacon seaweed? Uh, um, don't know. <laughs> I don't oh, no. know. Okay, fine. All right, because that's right, so bacon seaweed, red, red sulf. Um, but it needs to be prepared a certain way. Okay, oh, yeah. good. Now, um, for for um, kosher fish that taste like like non-kosher self uh, shellfish. So, what what did you eat this year? Okay, so we did a few things. We had um, oysters. Now, the interesting thing about oysters is that while the oyster is not kosher, the oyster shell, according to the OU and other kosher agencies, is kosher because the oyster huh. shell is not considered to you know the meat of the oyster. Now, oyster shell is not something you'd eat anyway. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard shell. Um, but, but the point is, we could serve our oysters in oyster shells mm -hmm. um, without, you know, you're not, we don't, as long as they're cleaned, you don't need to worry that, you know, you're contaminating mm -hmm. the contents with a, with a tray for a receptacle. Wow. And the other thing you can do is that you can grind the oyster shell into a powder, and it's actually a calcium supplement, and, it, and mm -hmm. it's legitimate to eat that. Wait, so, okay, so... So we had a... Uh, Fake oysters in real oyster shells. Yeah, and the oysters, the oyster flesh was was a substitute prepared from quail eggs. Huh. And cool. uh, and you could sprinkle if, if, the oyster shell powder on it. So you'd be eating something that that looks like oyster and that tastes like oyster that has oyster but which is not oyster. So if it walks huh? like a duck, if it you know it quacks like a duck, then it is a duck. But uh, wow. in this case, it, it looked like oyster, it tastes like oyster, it had oyster, but it wasn't oyster. Wow, okay, I want to go to the next uh, Feast of the Sea, the next time we do that. Okay, so that's the first thing. What about um, kosher, is that kosher squid or kosher squid? squid else? Yeah, so squid was really challenging. Um, so we, I managed to find in Japan a company that makes a, a mold in the shape of a squid. Uh, and then the, the chef was able to make uh, a fish, you know, a kosher concoction that could be uh, made in the mold. And again, there's a certain type of, of squid relative called a nautilus, also a cephalopod, which has an external shell, 
So again, that shell could be cleaned and ground into a calcium powder. Hmm. And then put into a, um, a squid mold. So it's shaped squid-like and tastes squid-like and has the shell of the squid on it, but is not actually squid. Correct. So I, as you mentioned Japan. Um, someone that I interviewed, uh, Saul Blinkoff, uh, one of our all-stars from the past, was at a meeting, a work meeting, and they were actually eating his people that he was with, like live squid out of like the the container at the restaurant and he had his bagel and cream cheese and he said he felt very um, happy to be kosher as they were eating the live animals. So that kind of reminded me of that. Um, what about swordfish? Ah, so one second, just before we get to the swordfish, sure. um, there was also, um, so caviar is an interesting thing. Okay. Caviar, uh, real caviar comes from a sturgeon. And there was some halachic dispute about the sturgeon uh, hundreds of years ago. Now there's nobody who will uh, endorse sturgeon as being kosher. Uh, but there are some caviar substitutes. Why? It has to yeah. do with, you know, for a fish to be kosher, it has to have fins and scales. The question yeah. is, what kind of scales exactly does it, have to have, does it have to have? So Ramban says that it needs to be scales that are detachable. Okay. Um, but then the question is, what does detachable mean? Does it mean that they come off easily? Does it mean that you, they can be scraped off? You know, does, it, does it mean that they come off without removing anything from underneath? Or is it okay if they remove you know, a bit of skin from underneath? There are all kinds of disputes about that. So sturgeon w w was disputed hundreds of years ago. Now it's not, you know, I don't know of anyone who accepts sturgeon as being kosher. Uh, but there are caviar substitutes, which are still very expensive, uh, but from other sources. There's a company in Russia which is uh, using a, a secret process producing a caviar substitute. And uh, they're very secretive about how they do it, but they let a rabbi into the factory to, in order to provide a hasha for it. So we were able uh -huh. to obtain some of that. Uh, so, okay, don't, so that's the only kosher caviar that's out there, meaning, or is there other uh, well, there's another type. There's another type called a uh, bofin caviar. A bofin is another kind of fish which has, uh, it, its eggs taste similar to sturgeon eggs, also very expensive. And uh, that's another type of caviar that we obtained. Got it. Okay, so that was your caviar, uh, that was your oyster, your um, squid. What about shrimp? And and what's the, I'm, I'm looking right oh, here. So shrimp's easily. You know, shrimp is just, uh, you know, a fish, a fish simulation. Okay. Um, the soup was interesting. The, yeah. the soup was uh, a pottage of predators. Shark and piranha. Now, what? shark fin soup is a you know a famous delicacy, but uh, sharks sharks are not kosher. So we just it was just you know a replica shark fin. But the uh, piranha in the soup that was real. Huh? Because piranhas are kosher. Now this is shark we find you know in the museum. This is one of the things we present on the tour. People are shocked by it because it's after we've explained about how birds of prey are not kosher and predatory animals are not kosher. Yeah. But with fish, there's no fish principle. Huh. So, uh, as long as the fish has fins and scales, it's fine. Uh -huh. Well, it. it could just be that fish are considered to be, you know, in a different realm. It could be because, it, really, all fish are predators, ultimately. There's not much plant life in the ocean. You know, a barracuda is a, is a kosher fish, and it's right. a, a voracious predator. Uh -huh. So the, 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 the whole idea of um, ruling out predators doesn't happen with fish. Mm -hmm. Well, so why why do we think of piranhas as being extra like uh, mean because they have like sharp teeth? Is that sort of the thing that makes piranhas? Yeah, they they have very sharp teeth. 
you know, they're, they're uh-huh. potentially, you know, you know, ferocious creatures. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we showed at our event, we showed a video of a cow, a part of a cow being lowered into a river and just being, you know, torn to pieces in a frenzy of uh, piranhas. Um, in the not kosher. Wow. Yeah. Um, what about, what's, you know, I feel like I didn't eat everything I should have before I was not kosher. Kaki St. Jack, what's, what's this? Yeah, that's uh, scallops. Again, so uh, the, the flesh of it was made from kosher foods, but served in the, in the clean shells of the scallop. Got it. And in terms of the kosher food that you're making, these are all just different fish that you're using to get it to have sort of that um, chewy yep. shellfish mm-hmm. taste? Right, exactly. Got it. Where do you find someone that knows how to prepare kosher trade? Because this is kind of one of my specialties. I'm saying, is there someone that, like, this is their specialty, or they just sort of played around with Fish that they thought uh, well, originally we started the chef we the chef we use Moshe Bassan. He's an award-winning chef, and we started with him for our biblical feasts because he is known. He's you know internationally renowned uh, for being a, a biblical chef, recreating biblical foods. Uh-huh. And he's you know adventurous. He's a challenge. You know we can present him with a you know a whole shechted deer or a buffalo whatever, and he knows what to do with it. And then when we branched out into this field too of seafood, you know he's an adventurous chef. And he's up to the challenge. And he also, you know, he used to be uh, non-religious and taste all kinds of different things, and he knows what he's aiming for. Very cool. I, I like this guy. Um, okay, swordfish. Can we talk swordfish? Swordfish, yes. That was the, uh, the uh, highlight of the, the, the event in Israel. So swordfish is very interesting in that nowadays everyone knows swordfish is not kosher. But what's interesting is that when you look into it, you find that for, uh, the Gemara lists swordfish as being kosher, and for hundreds of years, Jews ate swordfish, and there was a halach, and n- nobody ever said it was not kosher. It was discussed in a lot of halachic works that the fish with the sword is kosher. It, it, was, inter- it was a topic of halachic interest because when you catch a swordfish, you don't see any scales on it. So how could a mm-hmm. swordfish be kosher without scales? So the Gemara says that they have scales with a young, and then they lose them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as said, now we know that the juvenile swordfish have scales, and those scales are actually later absorbed into the skin, so you don't see them on the adults. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, until 1950, you know, everybody ate swordfish. You know, you can find the list of kosher fish from the uh, Agudas Harabonim, which is, you know, the precursor of uh, Agudas Israel, and they list, this, they list swordfish as a kosher fish. What happened was in the 1950s, some people uh, started to believe it was not kosher and started to... You know, challenge that because they couldn't find the scales and to wonder if maybe historically Jews were not eating swordfish. And, and then the conservative movement came out saying swordfish is kosher. So that, at that point, some people started to, to present it as an orthodox versus conservative argument, at which mm-hmm. point you know, all the orthodox said, well, we're with the orthodox, we're not conservative. So that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, swordfish got universally rejected. But more recently, people have been doing the research and, you know, so this is clearly a fish you know, the Jews ate so, you know, for many, many centuries, and the juveniles do have scales. And then, you know, swordfish was presented to cashless authorities such as uh, Rav Herschel Schechter in the U.S. and Rav Shlomo Machbut, who's uh, from B'nai Barak, who's one of the most uh, prestigious, you know, cashless authorities in, in Israel. And they examined the young swordfish, and they found scales, and they said it's kosher. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the problem is, uh, this is the problem we ran into last year. So last year we tried to do swordfish. It didn't work. You know, I ordered. I was in the U.S. I ordered five hundred dollars swordfish. I went mm-hmm. to the uh, the fish place, but it was a, it was a steak. Now the pro- 
Normally, with like a salmon or something, you can buy a salmon steak because you can see the scales, you know it's kosher. But with swordfish, you don't see the scales. The only way mm. you can know it's kosher is because you know it's a swordfish and it had scales when it was young. Mm. But if you're buying a steak, you know, in a, non, in a non-kosher supermarket, you can't mm. be halal that it's swordfish. Mm. The only way you can be sure is if you get the whole fish. Yeah. Now, getting a whole fish, that is not easy. Um, so for this event in Israel, we spent months, you know, calling around fishermen in, in Eilat, in Ashdod, and finally we found someone who landed a whole swordfish. You know, this thing was six feet long, you know, 3,000 shekels. Wow, I didn't realize it was, it was so you know, long. It, it was, yeah, it was quite the Leviathan. How many people does a six-foot And then, you know, how do you freeze it? You know, how, yeah. how do you freeze a six-foot-long swordfish? So luckily we found a, a local yeshiva let her walk in freezer and let her store it in their freezer. Wow. So is this meaning, do you think that there's any chance that, I mean, actually, I never actually like swordfish, so I'm not missing that. Um, but is there any chance that people might re-examine this, or you think that in terms of this going mainstream, this is not going to happen anytime soon? Um, it might. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing that it would. Swordfish, they're not quite, they have been endangered in the past, now they're making a bit of a comeback. But uh, it's not necessarily, you know, a great thing for people to be eating swordfish on a, on a large scale. Uh, what will happen in the future with cashews, with the acceptability of it? I don't know. I, I, you know. I try not to predict the future, except in hindsight. Got it. Um, what about locusts? Um, so you serve them for dessert. Um, well, how does it work if you're not Sephardic? Like, meaning Sephardim have, some of them right. have this, like, ongoing right. tradition. Right. So, so can, can we rely on their minhug or not really? Or we can Right, so you know the Torah lists certain locusts, types of locusts as being kosher, and it's uh, you know North African Jews and Yemenite Jews have retained traditions as to which types of locusts that is. So many Ashkenazim assume that you know we don't have the tradition, so we can't eat it. But in actual fact, the situation is that it's not like, for example, the situation with um, stork. Right, so with stork, there's a long-standing tradition that the stork is not a kosher bird. Now, mm-hmm. there was one community that did have a tradition to eat storks. However, mm-hmm. since we have a tradition that stork is not kosher, you know, you can't accept their tradition that it is kosher, because we have a tradition in the opposite direction. But with locusts, there was no Ashkenaz tradition that locusts are not kosher. There was just, mm-hmm. you know, a lack of any tradition because there were no locusts in Ashkenaz. So according to many, although certainly not all, but according to many halakhic authorities, it's, it's because there was just no tradition either way, it, it, you're allowed to rely on the uh, the uh, the North African tradition, just as with birds, just as with many birds, even if you d- you don't have a tradition that it's kosher, but you can accept those who do have a tradition. Got it. Or turkey or goose or whatever. Is there one food that you've served at any of these uh, feasts that are sort of the most that people are kind of the most scared of, or it's the most exciting? Or... Oh, that would definitely be the locust. <laughs> that would definitely be the locust. You know. And how do people? <laughs> I would always tell people, you know, like, my wife still doesn't manage them. My wife is uh, locust intolerant. Yeah, I could imagine that she might be. Um, uh-huh. So, did, did anyone say, "Oh, these are delicious. I got to eat more of these," or if people just kind of try it for the experience and then they're done? Uh, I, I, I can just speak from personal experience. You know, the first time I ate a locust, it was incredibly difficult. You know, I just I couldn't <laughs> get it down. Uh, second time was a bit harder, you know, and now I can, you know, pop them into my mouth without thinking twice about it. It's really the kind of thing that uh, when, 
once you get over the cultural barrier. But then again, you know, I'm British, you know, I can eat Marmite, if you know what that is. And my yeah. American I wife certainly cannot. So they showed it to me. Yeah, they, they had me try a little bit that. Yeah. Okay, so now you have something coming up. So what's the event in Teaneck? Um, when is it? Um, right. Just a quick overview of what will be served, how to sign up. Yeah. So the event in Teaneck is the biblical menu, uh, although uh, not including locusts, but it's the biblical menu of uh, birds and beasts from Tanakh. And uh, it's taking place at a, at, a, at a private venue in Teaneck. And if people want to find out more about it, they can go to our website, www.biblicalnaturalhistory.org slash feast. And that's where all the information is. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's, it's partially a, a fundraising event for our museum to help us in our mission of, of teaching and inspiring people about the relationship between Torah and the animal kingdom. But it's also going to be an amazing, you know, gourmet feast of these spectacular foods that are just not available anywhere else. And we're going to, be, going to be doing presentations about them. We're also going to be having some live exotic creatures for people to meet. And it's going to be, you know, a ta- uh, an immersion to this uh, world of Torah animals and exotic cashers. I, I assume kids don't usually come. This is a little bit um, higher. Yeah, than well, it's the kind of a high price, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's a high-priced uh, luxury event, so it's not usually really, we don't usually see too many kids there. Got it. And also, my kids can't do more than like hot dogs and chicken nuggets. Um, and yeah. do you, you sh- a person signing up for this like should be a foodie? I'm saying they should be someone that is used to and excited about eating adventurous foods. Yeah. Or well, you know, these it's not going to be so much of the scary things on this menu. Fantantina. Uh, it's gourmet. It's either somebody who's a foodie who's fascinated by foods, or somebody who's fascinated by you know cult unusual aspects of Judaism. You know, that these are foods that our ancestors in Tanakh ate and which these people are just not eating today. And would you say that these different well, you wanna, birds... You want to eat like uh, Shlomo Hanelech did. Right, eat like a king you know, in Tanakh. Shlomo Hanelech, every day... And in, like terms of di- in terms of these different birds, quail, dove, that sort of thing, do they taste like chicken or it's already a little bit of a departure? No, no, no. Oh, no, it's a very different taste. A very different taste. Um, you know, you'll know when you sing in Shabbat, you know, what are these barburim, what are these slav? Now, that's the geese and quails, but what does that actually mean to hitaneg with them? So that's what people are going to experience. It says that Shlomo HaMelech at his table every day, you know, he had geese and deer. So, you know, it's a chance to, uh, to feast like Shlomo HaMelech once in your life. Very cool. All right, well, we wish you uh, continued Hatzlacha with uh, the museum thank and you. your teaching and, and these events. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. And you guys can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.